How to Play, Episode 18, Alhambra. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the How to Play podcast. This is Episode 18, and today we will be talking about Alhambra. This is your host, Ryan Sturm, and this episode was recorded on August 1st, 2010. It's a beautiful, warm, sunny day here from the How to Play Studios in beautiful Western New York. In today's episode, you're going to hear an explanation of the game Alhambra, just as if I was sitting across the table and we were about to play the game together. This is intended to be used to find out about a game you don't know much about, or to learn how to play a game, or to learn how to teach a game. If you like the show, check out our website at www.howtoplaypodcast.com. And if you'd like to discuss the show, the forum for the show is at a guild at boardgamegeek.com. So if you go to that website, you look for the guild section, you can find our guild and join up and discuss the show or any other topic about learning and teaching games. I can be contacted at the guild there on BoardGameGeek, or you can contact me directly at my email address, howtoplaypodcast at msn.com. Podcasting isn't a free hobby. There are some costs associated with the show, so if you'd like to help out with that, we have a PayPal donation button at the website, howtoplaypodcast.com. And if you want to make a donation of $20 or more, I will send out to you a t-shirt that says how to play on it. So consider donating today. All right, let's get to today's game. We're going with a little bit of a lighter game than we've done in the last few episodes here. This game is called El Hambra. It won the Spiel de Jahr, German Game of the Year Award, in 2003. You know, with some games, it takes the second or third play for me to really appreciate and really grow to love that game, whereas other games are just love at first play. And El Hambra definitely falls into the latter category. I distinctly remember my first game of this. It was at Origins a few years ago. I was taught the game, and once we got into it, I just really started to get this stupid grin on my face, and I thought to myself, I really like this game. I love the elegance of this game. I love how quick it plays and how interesting the decisions are. And it's really easy to pick up and learn, and anyone can really enjoy it. This game was designed by Dirk Hen, and I recommend playing it with three or four players, though you can play it from two to six. Complexity rating. This game is... Uh, ooh, ah, ooh, oof. I want to call it a green circle, but when I got through the script of this, it's just a bit too long to call a green circle. There's just a few too many rules, so I'll have to call it a blue square. But it really is easy to pick up. The gameplay is very intuitive, very easy to figure out. It's not a very long game. It lasts about an hour. So I've had success playing this with lots of different people. Though it does have a moderate amount of rules, and you're going to need people who are willing to listen to a 10 or 15 minute rules explanation. How to play is in four parts. We'll have a hook, which will introduce the game to you. Then we'll have the meat of the rules. Then the third part is the hamster. This gets your hamster spinning in your heads, gives you some basic strategy for the game. And then the fourth part of the show is the footnotes and the musings. I get to those little bitty rules that people sometimes forget about. I tell you a little bit about playing it with different numbers of players. And since this is a shorter game in today's musings, we'll hopefully have a little bit more time to muse. There are a lot of games with the Alhambra name on them, so I'll talk a little bit about all the different Alhambra games. 
And since this is a great game for introducing non-gamers to modern board games, I'm going to go over some basic do's and don'ts of introducing family and friends to these games of ours. How do you get your family and friends to play games? What should you do and what shouldn't you do? That'll come up right after the footnotes. And finally, I do recommend actually having the game in front of you uh, or the rulebook or access to the web so you can see what the board looks like and the components. So that will help you better understand the rules. Okay, that's my intro spiel. Let's get to that hook. Part 1. The Hook. What the game is about. Welcome to Alhambra. You are a builder, assigned to build the most beautiful palace in Europe. You want to make your palace, or Alhambra, as large as possible by buying these building tiles. Each player is going to start with a fountain tile, and you're going to place other building tiles orthogonally adjacent to form a cluster of tiles that you're going to call your beautiful Alhambra, and you're going to watch it grow throughout the game. On your turn, you're going to collect money cards to let you buy the building tiles, or you're going to spend some of those money cards to buy the building tiles that are available. And if you play the game really well, you'll get to do both on your turn. At three times during the game, about a third of the way, two-thirds of the way, and at the end, we're going to score points. There are two different ways to score points. First, there are six different colors or types of buildings in the game. Each player who has the most of one of those colors is going to score points. For example, whoever has the most gardens or green buildings when we do the first scoring will get five points. And similar bonuses are given for the other five colors. So you want to try to focus on a few colors or types of buildings that you're going to get the most of. You also get points for the wall of your Alhambra. As we build our Alhambra, we want a wall around the outside. You might have two separate sections, but you only get to count your longest wall, and you get one point for each section of your longest wall. For example, maybe you had four walls connected on one side and six connected on the other. You're going to get six points for your largest wall. After that first scoring, we'll get back to playing the game. Each player continues taking turns by getting money cards or building buildings. And the game continues till we get to the second scoring, and then again with the final scoring at the end of the game. And after we have totaled all three rounds up, the players scoring after each section for having a lot of buildings in different colors, and for the length of their walls, the player with the most points will win the game. Part 2. The Meat. How to play the game. So, what you're trying to do is get the money cards to buy buildings to score points for dominating colors and for your walls. So let's look at how you get buildings. Now you're going to have some starting money cards to help you buy the buildings, and you're going to collect more of those money cards throughout the game. Let's look at the money. The money in this game is of values 1 to 9 of four different colors or currencies. Yellow, green, blue, or orange. And remember that the buildings are of six different colors representing the type. So you need green money to buy green buildings, right? That's wrong. And that seems logical, but that's not exactly the way it works, and it's kind of confusing. Let me explain the difference between colors of money and colors of buildings. So the money has colors and the buildings have colors, but those colors don't really have anything to do with each other. The colors of money are used for buying the buildings. The colors of the buildings are used for scoring the buildings. So there are blue buildings and blue money, but you don't necessarily need blue money to buy blue buildings. 
there's always four building tiles available for sale. Four random building tiles are going to be pulled from a bag and placed in a spot on the gray available buildings board. Each spot on this board has a colored coin next to it, yellow, green, blue, and orange. And the color of the coin is the color of the money that's needed to buy that building. Each building tile has a price printed on it, but for the color of the money that you have to use, you have to see what the colored coin is next to that building. For example, there is a white building with price 10 on the building, and that building is on the spot next to the yellow coin. So you need to play yellow money cards of total value of at least 10 to buy that building. Got it? One more example, if you have a green building with a price of 8 next to the blue coin. So you need to play one or more blue money cards of a total of eight or more to buy that building. So just because the building is green doesn't mean you use green money. You have to look at the coin spot on the board. The fact that it is a green building only matters for scoring rounds to see who has the most buildings of a certain color. The color of the coins is for buying the building tiles and the colors of the buildings are used for scoring. If you understand that, you understand the hardest part of learning this game. Congratulations! You must have a great teacher. Now, how does a turn actually work? Alright, on a turn, you get to do one action. Usually, either collecting some money cards or buying a building tile. Let's look at these two things. First of all, collecting money. You're going to have a starting hand, but it's usually good to build up a hand of money at the beginning of the game to help you buy buildings. There will be four money cards for you to choose from that are face up on every turn. If you want to collect money, you simply look at those four cards and choose one. Or, if there's a lot of smaller money cards, you can take multiple cards if their total is equal or less than five. For example, I could take a three and a two card. Or, I could just take an eight card. Or, maybe I could take a one, a one, a one, and a two card. If you take money cards, then your turn is over. You simply flip up cards so that there are four available face up for the next player, and it's their turn. Or, you might want to buy a building. So instead of taking cards, you spend your cards to get a building tile. As described before, look at the money coin that the building's next to. Say there was a purple building with a 10 on it next to the green coin. You need to pay one or more green cards of 10 or more to take the purple building. Maybe I play a 7 green and a 4 green, totaling 11. So I can pay those, put them in a discard pile, and now I get the 10 purple building tile. And I can place it in my Alhambra. So how do you place a building? Well, you're going to place it orthogonally adjacent to the other tiles you have. So if it's your first tile, you have to put it next to either on the sides or above or below that fountain tile. You can't rotate the tile. The building has to stay right side up. If you put buildings on their side or upside down, the, the people fall out and they get really mad. So you can't rotate the tile. There are walls on zero to three sides of the tiles. The walls are generally going to go on the outside. Wall sides can only touch other wall sides, and non-wall sides can only touch other non-wall sides. And when you place a building, an imaginary person inside your Alhambra would have to be able to walk to your fountain. If there's a wall in the way and they can't get there, it's an illegal placement. All these rules generally are there to help you build the walls around the outside of your Alhambra. You can have an interior wall, but there has to be a way to get around it. Always just imagine that there's a person, a miniature person, in your little palace, and he needs to be able to walk to all the other tiles without being blocked by walls. Dude! Hey, dude! Somebody build the wall here!
I'm trying to get to the fountain, man. I'm thirsty. I'm really thirsty. Does anybody have a rope? Don't prevent Melvin here from getting to his fountain. He seems to get thirsty a lot. He also likes snacks. And so you're building this wall, and it's going to go along the outside. And it's good to build a long wall because you get points for your longest wall. It may happen later in the game if you have too many walls, you might not have a legal place to play a building. You can keep it, but you put it in your reserve section, which is a little box on your player aid. And it's not actually in play, you're going to have to spend a turn to get it in play. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. So a lot of times, that's the whole turn. You get one action, you're either going to pick up a money card or maybe a couple little money cards, or maybe you're going to buy a building. But with good, proper planning, you can get bonus actions on your turn. Bonus actions, bonus actions, bonus actions. When you buy a building, you really want to pay with the exact amount of money. You don't want to overpay for two reasons. Number one, you don't get any change. So if you pay 13, like with a 9 and a 4, you just pay the whole thing. You don't get 3 back. There's no real bank to get money back. Reason number 2 is that if you pay with the exact amount, you get to take another action that turn. You can either buy another building, or you can take money with a bonus action. Bonus actions, bonus actions, bonus actions. So a common turn is to buy a building with exact change, so you get a bonus action, bonus action. and then you take some money. It's like getting two turns for one. If you do that a lot, you're going to have a big advantage on your opponents. Plus, you can keep getting bonus actions. Bonus actions, bonus actions. You could buy one building exactly, get a bonus action, and then buy another building exactly, and then take money. That's like three turns for one. Or alternatively, you could buy one building exactly, buy another building exactly, and then for a third action, overpay for a third building and then that would be your turn. Your turns will generally end when you've either overpaid for a building or taken money. Getting bonus actions, bonus actions is great, and it's really sort of a key mechanic of the game. You're trying to collect money to set yourself up to get as many of these bonus actions as possible, both by getting a lot of different cards and seeing what buildings are coming up and trying to plan a turn ahead to help you get that bonus action. Bonus action. Some important notes about these multiple actions. The buildings that are for sale do not refill until after a player's full turn. So after you buy the building with yellow money, that box stays empty. You could buy a building from the green, blue, and orange money spots, but that yellow one is done for that turn. And that means that the most buildings a player could buy in a turn would be four. The best possible turn would be if you had exact change for every building there and then you take money. You could do five actions in a turn. I don't think I've ever actually seen that happen. But after every player's turn, all those buildings refill. So if I bought two buildings, those buildings would refill then for the next player. The last thing you need to know about multiple buildings is you place buildings at the very end of your turn and you can buy them in any order on your turn then and then place those buildings that you bought in any order. And know that you can only place the ones you've just bought. You can't move around the ones that have been already placed. So that's the heart of the game. Collect money, buy buildings, and try to set up yourself for some of those bonus actions. Bonus actions. But there's one more possible action you can do on your turn, and that's redesigning your Alhambra. 
This is how you get pieces in your reserve onto your Alhambra, or you can use it to get rid of pieces in your Alhambra that are causing you trouble, or swap those pieces out. This is usually done by someone who's built so many walls that they're having trouble playing more tiles. When you decide to redesign your Alhambra, that's your action for your turn, so you won't collect money or buy a building. Though you could buy a building exactly, and then as your bonus action, redesign your Alhambra. Moving buildings around is hard work. It takes time. You can only do it one tile at a time. You can't just go move a bunch of buildings around. So you don't really want to do this a lot during the game, or you're probably going to lose, as other players are using their turns to get a lot more buildings. But when you do take the action, you can do one of three things. You can pull a tile off of your Alhambra and put it in your reserve that's causing you problems. Maybe it's one of those with three walls. Or you can add a tile to your Alhambra that you now have a place for. Or you can do a swap. Take one tile out of your Alhambra and replace it with a tile that's in your reserve section. Keep in mind, if you ever have tiles in that reserve box, they don't count for scoring, which is bad. Try to avoid redesigning as much as possible, as it does cost you turns, but once in a while you have to do what you have to do. So let's review the flow of the game with all the actions you can do on your turn. You have to take one action. You either collect money, one card, or a total of five or less, or redesign your Alhambra, or buy a building tile with money cards. If you buy a building exactly, then you get to take another action, either money, redesigning, or buying another building. A player's turn is over when they either take money, redesign, or overpay for a building. And at the very end of a player's turn, they will place the buildings they have just bought in their Alhambra in any order they want, or they'll put it in that reserve box if they have to. The money area gets refilled to four face-up cards, and the buildings get refilled to four tiles. And it's at that refill step that we will figure out when the scoring will occur. The first two scorings, also known as the A and the B scorings, happen when a scoring card comes up in the money card deck. The final scoring, also known as the C scoring, happens when there are three or less buildings left for sale. Those A and B scoring cards have backs that look like money cards and they're hidden in that money card deck. And the way it's set up is so that the A card appears about a third of the way through the money deck, meaning about a third of the way through the game, and the B card's about two thirds of the way down in that deck so about two-thirds of the way through the game. But you never quite know when it's going to happen, which makes it pretty exciting. And the points that are scored during those rounds is shown there on your reference card. Note also on your reference card there, it tells you how many of each of those tiles are in the game. The blue and reds, there's only seven of each, nine of the brown and white, and 11 of the green and purple. The more tiles there are of it, the more likely people will fight over those colors, but you'll also note that winning those colors is worth more in the scoring. Blues and reds are worth the least, and greens and purples are worth the most. The scoring gets more dramatic with each round. The A scoring is just a few points, the B scoring gives you moderate points, and the C scoring big chunks of points, with 21 points going to the person with the most purple buildings. So a third of the way through the game, that A scoring card will come out when we refill the cards, and we stop the game at that point and we score. And as we just go down the card, you give one point to the person with the most blue buildings, two for the person with the most red, all the way down to six. Then players get points for their longest wall, and those are all the points. If two players tie for having the most, they divide the points and round down. So if two players were tied for purple, they'd each get three. And then the game would continue with the player whose turn it was about to be when we were refilling those scoring cards. 
then we'll just keep playing and we'll get a third of the way more through the deck the b scoring card will come up and then we score again in the b scoring we score first and second place with ties you just add the first and second place and then you divide the points by two and round down then they score their longest wall once again then we keep playing to the c scoring when does that c scoring happen when you can't refill the buildings up to four meaning there's three or less buildings available. When that happens at the end of the turn, the game is over. Nobody gets another turn. Everybody reveals the money cards in their hands, and for whatever buildings are left over, whoever has the highest total money for that color gets that building tile and can put it immediately in their Alhambra if they have a place to play it. If they can't play it, then it just goes on their reserve. So there might be buildings left in green, orange, and blue. Everybody adds up the sum of the money cards they have. Whoever has the most green cards will get that building that's there on the green money square. After that, money's then worthless and can be just tossed away. Buildings that are still on the reserve are also worthless. They're not going to score. You ran out of time. In the C scoring, you're going to score first, second, and third place. The points start getting big. For example, for blue, we have 16 for first, 8 for second, and 1 for third. Keep in mind, you have to have at least one tile of a color to score for that color. For example, if you have three players and one player has five purple tiles, another has five purple, and the other one has zero, the other player wouldn't get the third place. You need to actually have the purple tiles to get the purple points. And finally, you score the walls. So after you score up the first, second, and thirds for each color, you score up the walls. The person with the most points wins the game. Part 3. The Hamster. How to win the game. So, the object of this game is to play a lot of tiles, to win colors, and to build a really long wall. How do you do that? Well, you want to try to get as many bonus actions as you can to get extra turns. Bonus to do that, you want to set up a good hand of cards with a variety of colors and numbers. You may want to target a tile a turn in advance, like if there's a building for sale for 8 blue money and there's a blue 8 card sitting there, pick it up and hope nobody builds it before you for the next turn. But at the same time, you have to buy useful buildings. Don't buy just whatever comes up. Just because it gives you a free action doesn't necessarily mean it helps you. You're still going to play cards to get that tile. Try to target a couple of colors and pay attention to what the other players are going for and do what the other players aren't doing. Don't get caught having buildings of all six colors. You won't win any bonuses and you're going to lose. Try to avoid buying colors that won't change your standing in a color, like buying your sixth building tile of a color that you have a dominating lead in or buying your first tile of a color three other players already have two of. Next, you need to manage your walls. Some walls are good, but too many walls can kill you. You gotta manage a balance between getting tiles with no walls and tiles with more walls. Too many walls early is gonna kill your ability to play tiles in the middle and late game. Tiles with walls are cheaper because they get harder to place the more that you have of them. And pay attention to where the walls are on a tile before you buy that tile. Because you may not be able to even play that tile after you buy it. And then it's just going to go in your reserve and you're going to have to spend a whole other turn just to play it. And if you end up getting wall cluttered, you have lots of walls all over the place, look for a tile with zero walls. That could save your bacon. Even if it's not a color you're really looking for. And you may want to overpay to get it. And these are some of the interesting decisions that just made me feel happy inside the first time I played this game. 
There's a healthy dose of luck in the game, but there's plenty of room for making good tactical choices. Do you overpay for that tile now, or do you try to wait a turn and get it exactly and hope it's still there? Do you buy that cheap tile with three walls? It's going to give you walls, but hurt your ability to play more tiles. Do you buy a tile just because you can, because you have exactly enough, even though it doesn't really help you, but it might later, and maybe it'll bug the person across the table. I hope you enjoy Alhambra, and maybe, just maybe, it'll put a stupid grin across your face too, and you'll think to yourself, I really like this game. Part 4. Footnotes and Musings all right, let's get to the vegetables. First of all, we got to talk about the setup because I made mistakes uh, setting up the cards first few times I played this game. Setting up the money can be a bit tricky. You're going to put those scoring cards in, the A and the B card, but you don't do it until after you set up the starting hands. To set up starting hands, you play a game of blackjack, essentially. You deal out the cards one to a player face up, and you keep giving each player cards until they have a total of 20 or more. And then that's their starting hand. They could have three cards, they could have seven or eight cards. And the player with the lowest sum value of cards, that determines the starting player. You don't have to go with a goofy starting player like whoever has the most Spanish palaces in their backyard or something. If there's a tie for the value, you look at how many cards people have. And the person among those people who has the least cards will be the starting player. Next, you have to deal out the starting cards that are available. There's four cards face up. Now that you have a little bit of a smaller deck, now is when you put those scoring cards in. You cut the remaining cards into about five equal piles, and you mix the A card into the second stack, the B card into the fourth stack, and then you stack them up. And that's really a nice system because you know that A is somewhere about a third of the way in, but you don't know where, and the B is somewhere about two-thirds of the way in. All right, so now into some other little rules. You only have the four face-up money cards to choose from. It's not like Ticket to Ride where you can take the top of the stack and take a random card. That's not allowed. You're not allowed to make empty voids of universe in the middle of your palace. Like if you had eight tiles all in sort of a circle, they would make an empty void there in the middle. That's not allowed. Melvin doesn't like voids of nothingness in the middle of his palace. An important note is that redesigning buildings happens before placing the buildings bought in this turn. Buildings that are just bought are placed at the very end of the turn. So if you need the building you just bought to play a tile on your reserve, you're going to have to wait to redesign and, and put that one in your reserve until the next turn. And my favorite last vegetable is the tiebreaker condition. There is no tiebreaker in this game. There are several winners. Hooray! I was going to stop that. I can't quit. Hooray. It's just too much fun. All right, let's get to some other footnotes on the game. First of all, I got to give some love to the insert that is in this box. I'm one of those people that just loves those plastic inserts when they have perfect little sections for everything where to go. Everything has been designed exactly just for that game, and everything fits perfectly. And this is one of those games. You put all the tiles in the four stacks, and they exactly line up with the top of the box. And the board is wedged in tightly in the top, so it doesn't slide around. And there's a little spot for you to roll up the cloth bag and put it in there. Oh, when you put it all in there, it just looks lovely. Thank you, Queen Games. I, I gotta say, I love inserts like that. 
that that's just a great use of plastic. Uh, we've got sad, sad games where there's just one container at the bottom for all the pieces to go in. Yes, I'm looking at you, Kalis. Or the top of the box doesn't have a nice place for that board to fit in exactly. You put the board there on top and it can just slide willy-nilly back, right and left, right and left, up and down. Who knows what could be happening to that board? Yes, I'm looking at you again, Kalis. These are, these are some of the things that keep me up at night. All right, so on to a more serious topic, and that is how many people to play this game with. This game really works best with three or four players. This is one of those few games that really does work well with three, as it gives a good number for you to be able to plan your turnout in advance and have a good chance if that building tile come back to you. It keeps the downtime low and just makes for a fast, interesting, interactive game. With four, Alhambra gets a little bit more dicey. You have to really take your chances that a building's going to come back to you. But the competition for the colors gets a little bit more interesting. With five or six players, I, I just can't recommend this game. I think that you get too much downtime without player interaction. The turns are relatively quick, but still, even with five or six, there's not any interaction between the players on a player's turn. And it just gets sort of random. You, you can't expect any of those building tiles to come back to you in a following turn. There is a variant in one of the expansions that kind of fixes this by giving you a token that you can use in the middle of other players' turns. But it's still a little bit clumsy, and it doesn't really fix the downtime issue. So I can't really recommend playing Alhambra with more than four players. Now let's look at the two-player game. In order to make the two-player game work, Alhambra uses a dummy rule, meaning there's a dummy third player. My wife and I really enjoy playing this together as a two-player. Now, some people really have a problem with having this imaginary third person. I don't. I mean, I, I like it. You know, his name is Dirk. They specify that in the game after Dirk Hen, the designer, I assume. And, and it's great. You know, it's almost like having another friend over, but, you know, they don't talk back. So how Dirk plays is at the beginning of the game, he gets six random tiles and he counts in the scoring. So you have to pay attention to that when you're trying to get the different colors. After the A scoring, he gets six more tiles. And after the B scoring, the rules say he gets a third of the number of tiles that are left, which is kind of annoying because you gotta take the tiles out of the bag and stack them up. It usually ends up to be about six tiles again. I think it would be nice just to pull six more tiles out of the bag if you wanted to make it simpler. And so he ends up being a factor in looking at what tiles are out there that you're trying to score with. It's important to know that when you play the two-player game, you have to remove one set of the money cards from the deck. You're going to take a card one to nine of each of the four colors out of the deck. So you'll have a deck of 72 cards instead of 108 cards. And then that'll make the timing of the scoring cards come out work in the game. The only other rule is you can buy a tile not for yourself, but for Dirk, and so you just put it in Dirk's pile. And it doesn't happen very often, but it gives you another decision to make. If your opponent is really going after purple and Dirk has some purple, you can mess with him by buying a purple tile for Dirk. So that gives you an idea of what you're looking for with this game. Pretty good with two and four, really great with three. This game, it won the Spiel de Jahr, which is a German gaming award, and usually when a game wins that award, it receives a bit more popularity. But it became quite a popular game just because it's a great game, and it became, as a lot of these Spiel de Jahr winners become, 
launched more from just a single game and became almost a franchise. And if you search for an Alhambra game, there's a load of Alhambra expansions, Alhambra spin-off games, and Alhambra Deluxe Editions. So if you don't own the game, or you do own the game and you're looking at some of the spin-offs, let's talk a bit about some of the other games that are available and what you might choose to buy. If you're looking at this and you just want to get the base game, base game is 40 bucks retail and you can get it online for about 25 bucks. But if you do that, you're probably going to be tempted to get these expansions. There's now five regular expansions to the base game. What's in the expansions? Well, they're little tweaks to the game system. Each expansion comes with four optional rules and components with them. So they'll have four different rule tweaks, and the rule tweaks might have a few different building tiles, a few wild cards, a couple different tokens, maybe some different money cards, etc., etc. And you can play with just one of the rule tweaks in an expansion, or you can play with two or three. Each one changes the game just a little bit, but nothing too dramatic. The base game pretty much stays the same. I think the price point for these expansions is a little bit high for what they are. The expansions are 25 to 30 bucks retail, but that works out to be about 15 or 20 bucks online. I don't think you really need them, uh, but the one people always talk about is expansion number one. It gives you those Vizier favor tokens, and those are, are good for helping the game work a little better with four, five, and six players. Those are the tokens that let you buy when it's not your turn. But if you look at it, it's really six wooden tokens for 16 bucks. You get the three other rule tweaks that you can use if you want, and so you have that to give you a little bit more variety. But having just the base game will suit you for lots of plays. But now that it's been out for a while, you might want to look at some of these different versions if you don't own the game yet. There's an anniversary edition that just came out. They sort of fancied up the components a little bit. The fountains are sort of 3D. It comes with the first expansion. And that's 55 retail or 35 online. It's not a bad deal. And I think if you get that, then you probably have all the Alhambra that you really need. And this is not to be confused with the Gold Edition. The Gold Edition didn't come with the first expansion. It just has fancier components. And then, for the completest, you could get the Big Box. Uh, the Big Box is 80 bucks retail, 55 online, and it comes with all five of the expansions. And if you're someone who knows you're just going to end up getting them all anyways, you're probably going to want to pick this up as you'll save quite a bit of money. There's also some spin-off games. There's Granada. Granada is pretty much Alhambra with just a few more rule tweaks. The building tiles have front and back sides. It's supposed to add a little bit more strategy, but be aware that the expansions for Alhambra won't really work for this game. But it's basically the same game, but if you want a little bit of a more strategic game, a little bit more complex, you may want to go that route. And I just learned that they're doing a retheme of Alhambra, and they're releasing that soon, sometime this year. It's called New York. And New York, obviously, you're going to be building a, a city, and the cities will have different building types, and it'll have roads instead of walls. I think the road mechanic is going to work a little bit different. And this might be a fun alternative if that theme appeals to you a little bit better. And then, of course, there's a few more standalone games. There's Alhambra the Card Game, Alhambra the Dice Game, and there's a, another standalone game called The Gardens of Alhambra. Oh, a franchising. And I'm sure there's probably going to be three or four more games to come out from Queen Games on, with the Alhambra name. It's, it's easy to go overboard in franchises like this, but I'd recommend just going with one of those base game packages, and I think you'll be happy with that, and, and I think Alhambra is a game that you'll get a lot of plays out of. So finally, let's muse a little bit. Let's talk a little bit 
about the idea of converting your family and friends into gamers. Is it possible? What to do and what not to do? Now this is a relevant topic because Alhambra is really a great gateway game. Gateway is this term that's been used a lot for games that are representative of our hobby of strategy games, but are a little bit different than games that other people might be used to, like a Monopoly or a Cranium. And Alhambra really does do that quite well. I chose this topic after seeing a post on our forums there at the Guild from our new friend Scott G. Scott's the game explainer in his area, and he's mostly teaching games to friends and family. And here's what he posted. He said, As I learn about these hobby games, I'm presented with the decision of which games to attempt to present to my family and friends, mostly still non-gamers. It's a difficult balance of games that I'd like to try, just about anything, and which games will fly in this group. Yet, when I hear your explanations of the rules, each game goes from, they'll never play this, to, it's not so bad, I can explain this in a way that will make it clear and fun. Now, when I read this post, well, first of all, I was glad. Thank you, Scott, for posting in the forums and, and providing such great feedback. But also, I had little warning bells go off in my head, going, ding dong, ding dong. Uh... Maybe not like that. I think warning bells sound a little bit more ominous, like, like, dong, dong. So regardless, what the bells were, were telling my brain was, don't do it. I just see Scott introducing one of these game, hard, hard games that I've done on the How to Play podcast, like a Brass or an Age of Steam, and, and just flashes of some of the mistakes I've made in trying to introduce games to non-gamers. And so I wanted to sort of try to give you a little bit of advice in that direction. Mostly it boils down to what I'm calling the golden rule of teaching games. And the golden rule of teaching games is when you are teaching a game, it's more important that the other players enjoy the game than if you enjoy the game. And so let's talk about a few things on what that means. What you shouldn't do is choose games to introduce your non-gamer friends to based on the ratings at BoardGameGeek. Don't say, oh, Puerto Rico, Agricola, these are rated the highest. These have got to be the best games there are, right? Well, you know, think about, like, the Best Picture Awards. Um, you know, you see those Oscars, and you think, what the heck is No Country for Old Men? I, I've never even heard of that movie. And so you go out, and you rent it, and you think, what the heck is this? I don't want to have to think about themes and cultural understanding and the deeper subtext of these characters' motives and all that. Can we just watch, you know, characters in cool outfits and see stuff blow up? And you think, you know, what my favorite movie of the year, you know what movie experience I enjoyed the most? Harry Potter 5. That was a sweet movie. It had, like, cool magic, and it was fun, and it was just a good movie experience. It maybe wasn't an important movie, but, uh, you know, it all depends on what you're looking for out of your movie experience. What does this analogy have to do with games? When people go to the theater, there's many different kinds of experiences that people are looking for. Some people go simply for entertainment. Some people go to reflect on the mysteries of human interaction. And some people go to admire the work of filmmaking. And when people play games, are looking for a certain kind of experience. And you need to tailor towards that, not what some group of game experts claim as the greatest game ever made. So realize that the Agricolas and the Puerto Ricos with your non-gamer friends probably aren't going to fly so well. 
You really need to start with some lighter games with a really small rule set and take things from there. And I want to tell you something, just to prepare yourself, and this may make you a little bit sad, but not everybody likes games. As much as you try, some people just are not going to enjoy playing board games. And we can be sad for them, but we have to accept that. And we also need to know that there are some people who enjoy playing games, but they're never going to become gamers. Your neighbors and your brother-in-law and your co-workers, they're probably not going to start playing Age of Steam and Tigers and Euphrates and Kalos next month after a few weeks of your guidance through some of these lighter games. Because to be a gamer, to really get into those heaviest of games, you have to love games enough not just to learn the rules, but to invest your brain in figuring out how to develop strategies, which requires time and, and a lot of effort. And we have to understand that people enjoy games for many different reasons. And for a lot of people, when they think of why they like games, they're thinking about the social experience of games. And they're not thinking about it as sort of let's mentally challenge ourselves. And as the game introducer, we have to understand that and be flexible to that. But it doesn't hurt to try. And what we can do is we can introduce people to some lighter, strategic new games. And as long as we work our way up and stay cognizant of how they're feeling about the game and see just maybe, just maybe they'll want to try something heavier. So you want to start with the simplest of games, what I call green circle games. Short games with just a couple of rules. You can bring them out in a variety of settings and just test out what these people think of these games. I mean, some real starter games. We're talking about For Sale or Blocus or Take It Easy or Hey, That's My Fish or Ink and Gold. And if you really want to go for it and see what they're thinking, Ticket to Ride, because Ticket to Ride is a little bit of a longer game. But it's a good judge to see who these people are as game players. Is that something that goes really well, or is that something that flops? If they say comments about Ticket to Ride, uh, things like, that game was really long, then you may, be, you may be staying at that green level. Some people don't want a game longer than an hour, and you have to respect that. If it seems like if they start to pick up on the strategy and get better, you know, maybe you try the games a second or a third time and they, they seem to really be enjoying figuring out the strategy and getting better at that, then you can take it to some of those next step games. Alhambra, this game we've talked about today, is, is a great next step game. But of course, we have the classic game Settlers of Catan. We have Citadels or Colosseum or Medici or Vegas Showdown. Any of those would be good choices. Now, these games are good because they have a healthy dose of luck, which is a good thing when we're playing non-gamers. As a person who probably has a little bit more experience with games, you're not going to have to worry so much about trying to throw the game or anything like that. You can all just sort of play the game and enjoy it. And for casual game players, you have to understand that this, these blue squares, these might be the end of the journey. If you're very lucky, you might find someone who really wants to invest in games as a hobby, and they may want to go beyond that. But realize that once you go further than that level of games, you really need people who are interested in committing a lot of time and energy into learning games and getting better at games. Take a game like Kalos. If you want to really play Kalos, you, you're going to want to play Kalos five or ten times of a two-hour game. You need to think to yourself realistically, is this something that these people are interested in? So let's get back to the original question. Is it possible to convert your family and friends into real, true gamers? It's probably pretty unlikely. 
But can you get them to play some interesting strategic games and have a good time together? Most definitely. As people who love games, we need to realize that gaming is a hobby to be enjoyed on many different levels. We need to merge these ideas of having a competitive strategic game, but also just having a nice, light, fun social experience. And we need to be flexible enough to enjoy all these different experiences of the board gaming hobby. Brass, yeah, Brass is a great game, but that's what your weekly game group is for, or your, your Saturday game group. Your neighbors and coworkers don't want to play Brass. They don't, probably. But if they do, you're, you're really going to have to work your way up to that. Another piece of advice not to do, don't buy games for friends and families that they didn't ask for. I think I've done this a few too many times. If you're thinking about buying a game for a, a friend or family or coworker, what you really have to ask yourself is, is this person going to be able to or want to pull this game out and play it with some other people that aren't you? Unless they've really become invested in gaming as a hobby, Probably not, as they probably aren't going to want to sit down and read the rules and learn how to teach it. It's probably better for you to just get the game for yourself and introduce it to them and be the keeper of the games. Because if they aren't able to pull it out with other people or aren't interested in learning it, it's just going to sit in their basement or in a closet somewhere. And it just becomes one of those gifts that you're giving them, not because it's something that they want, but it's something that you want. You want them to like this game. If they really are interested in having their own game, they'll say something. Or they'll go out and they'll get it. If they want to go out and get games, you, you do want to suggest where to find the games and give good recommendations of games that maybe they'll like that they should pick up. And the last thing I'd mention about introducing games to non-gamers is if you're trying to do this sort of thing, you got to be prepared. You have to have the rules mastered. You shouldn't even have to pick up the rule book except to maybe see how to set up. Everything else should be by memory. Read the rules the day before or that afternoon. So that's my advice in your attempts to go out and spread the good news that is board games. Remember, in introducing games, it's not about you. It's about them. Give it a try. See where it will take you. And keep spreading that game love around this great world of ours. And maybe, just maybe, we'll find ourselves some of those lost gamers that loved board games and didn't even know it. That's going to do it for episode 18 of Alhambra. I hope you enjoyed it. This really is a great game to play with some of your non-gamer friends and introduce and show to them what a great game experience can really be. Don't forget to consider making a donation at the website. You can get yourself one of those great How to Play t-shirts. Join up at the guild and say hi. I'd love to hear from a lot more of you. I know there's hundreds of you that haven't dropped by that guild yet, so drop by and say hi. But for now, I'd like to say thank you so much for listening. This has been Ryan Sturm for the How to Play podcast. One, two, three, four. This has been Ryan Stern for the How to Play podcast. How to Play is written, recorded, edited, produced, promoted, and financed by Ryan Stern. How to Play is a one-man, independent podcast not affiliated with any game vendor or game company. If you like How to Play podcast, I count on you to support it. You can help out by joining and participating in the guild, donating financially to the show, writing reviews or rating the show on iTunes, help talk up the show in your game group or on the forums at BoardGameGeek, and even just thumb announcements of new episodes. 
We have no contests, no gimmicks, no advertisements, no plugs to game websites or companies. All of the show's content is free of all bias, save for one, my own. And that is due to your own continuing support. Please consider supporting the show in some way today. I love to hear feedback from you, and I can be contacted through our discussion forum on the Guild at BoardGameGeek, or I can be emailed at howtoplaypodcast at msn.com. This podcast home on the web is www.howtoplaypodcast.com. Thanks again, everybody, and until next time, I hope you will learn, teach, and play great games.